My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. This is God's word. You may be seated. All right, if you, uh, if you have kids with you and you need to take them back to the kids' room, the kids' room is right down the little hallway there on the left side, right by the entry door, and you can take them over there. Uh, today it is uh, my family watching after your kids, so I trust them. I think, uh, I think you can trust them as well. And so uh, that's, that's your moment to do that, and I will pray and uh, enter us into this time. So let's, uh, let's pray together. Father in heaven, we're thankful to be here today. We're, we're thankful to be gathered together in your presence. Thank you for giving us your word. We truly do believe that it's like a light to our path, that we can see life more clearly by living according to your word. And we pray that you would guide us and teach us from it. Pray that you would give us wisdom that aligns with your wisdom. And we pray that we would be formed and shaped by the gospel, that the ways that we live would be actual expressions where people could look at us and say, Ah, that's, that's what it means to follow after Jesus. So I pray as we enter into this time that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our heart would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So this, uh, this Christmas, we're reflecting on the first Christmas song, and it's, uh, it's Mary's Magnificat, as we just read together. And this is, it really is a song. It's full of scripture. If you look in your Bible at all of the references underneath it, it's, it's, just extensive. There are lots of Psalms, there's Isaiah, there's so much that Mary has stitched together in this song. And, and she's magnifying the Lord in her song, which we've said that was kind of the first of this uh, sermon series was what it means to magnify the Lord, to enlarge your contemplation of God. And that's how she began. And that's how we began. And two weeks ago, uh, Thomas encouraged, encouraged us to consider the depth of of Mary as a disciple, and, and he kind of helped us look at, hey, you know, in, in what we might call the Protestant church, which is a little more of our group here, we often want to diminish Mary because of our history with Catholicism or something like that. But the truth is that she had amazing faith, as is evidenced in her song, and she was truly the first disciple. She was the first one to put her faith in Jesus and to, and to walk forward accordingly, and we owe really a, a lot of debt to her for showing us what it looks like to have faith. And then last week, John encouraged us to consider the, the mercy of God, that this was really, you know, laying onto us that God is a merciful God. And I liked what John drew out when he, when he helped us think that through. Mercy isn't just restraint. It's not just God looking at us and saying, okay, I won't punish you. 
but it's actually active love. It's God looking at us and saying, not only do I not punish you, but I give you my presence and my very self. And that that then changes people. It spreads through families from generation to generation. And tonight we move to a a scriptural verse that Mary spoke. It's it's, uh, 51 and 52 are the verses this evening, but it's full of scriptural references again. And it says, he's shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones and and has exalted those of humble estate. And I want to I want to walk through this with you. I'm going to give you some really big picture ideas here because as I said, there are a lot of scriptures referenced here, but also there there's just a lot of concept that you kind of have to see throughout the whole of the scriptures to really understand what Mary is saying um, in this short section. So, I'm going to show you that through a legacy of singing women in the Bible. I'm going to show you these um, three songs especially that just reinforce this idea that Mary is speaking of, and she even kind of alludes to some of them herself. Then I want to examine how we respond to a scripture like this. Sometimes we can do one of two things. We can under-spiritualize or over-spiritualize something like this, and I want to talk about that. And then I want us to just land on a meditation of what what it means to receive a God who is strong, but who came to us in weakness. And and what it means to follow a God who tells us to take up our cross and follow after him. So that's, uh, that's where we're headed. And we'll start off, as I said, a legacy of singing women in the Bible. This is, this is a bit of it. This is a, this is a large chunk of it, by the way, because I'm giving you this context that, that follows the Bible as a whole. So there's a sense you can get, if you, if you think about it this way, that at each of the great moments when you see the power of God and the grace of God really exemplified in the Bible, there's, there seems to be a song almost every single time, and the Bible really captures it. And, um, and a lot of the times, a woman's singing the song, which is kind of cool. The first one, though, is from God, God himself. And it's Genesis 1. And Genesis 1 is not what we're used to thinking about as a song. Uh, in, there's a little storybook Bible that we used to read to our daughter, Abby, who's taking care of your kids right now. But we used to read to her from this Bible, and it always said at the beginning, and we read this thing probably 200 times in her childhood. We read all the way through this little thing. And it just started out with God singing everything into existence. And, and it really isn't a bad um, way of summarizing it, because Genesis 1 is something like exalted prose. It's, it's not a textbook. This is why many have said that you can't really read it like a science, you know, a science piece of work. It's not scientific. It's poetic. It's beautiful. Uh, it's exalted prose. It's not to be read like a spreadsheet. There's all this, these declarations that the Lord said, let there be, and it was so. And in the Hebrew language, language, it would have come across as just beautiful and captivating, not something that you would ever read and go, ah, is that exactly how everything worked out? So, just you know, a brief aside, in case no one's ever told you, you don't need to be too stressed about you know science in Genesis one. You're dealing with a song, um, and the Christian simply needs to see creation as God's power and God's grace, and that's really what Genesis one is telling us. God sees it, He declares it, He's powerful, and then He blesses it. He said, says that it's good, and He's giving it to people. Right? It's a gift. 
And why do we love it so much and find so much pleasure in it and beautiful complexity in it? Because it's, it's evidencing power to us, the power of God, the genius of God. But it's also pleasurable. There's so much in the world that we enjoy, and that's because it's a gift. Now, what does this have to do with these singing women that I'm talking about? Well, if God sings over his people, if he sung the order into the cosmos, if he composed and orchestrated the elements of the earth so that they would declare his praise and bring joy to our hearts, then these women I'm about to tell you about understand the heart of God very much. And they declare the word of God and lead us in the praise of God as people who know God deeply. That's, that's what we learn when we see these women singing in the scriptures. They know God deeply. They're leading us. They're showing us how to worship. So who are these great singing women? The first of them is Miriam in the Exodus. And so the Exodus, um, many of us probably know what that is. It's a pretty um, famous event, but if you're not as clear on it, it was a, a time when a people who'd been called by God, the Israelite people, were enslaved in Egypt for 400 years, and they were not able to save themselves. They were powerless to do so. And God delivers them. He, he promises he's going to deliver them. He speaks to the leaders of Egypt and tells them that he is going to deliver them and commands them to let his people go. And those people have, you know, they, they could listen to the voice of God or they can oppose him, and he's going to um, show them powerful and supernatural uh, acts until they do. And that's what happens, right? There are plagues and these, these things where God you know, exhibits his power and his judgment on the people who won't let his people go. And then we see this especially huge moment at the Red Sea where the people of God are they're fleeing Egypt. Um, they've been told to go, but now they're being pursued by their enemies. And they're before um, a feature of God's created order, right? And it is a body of water, a large sea. And all reason and human capacity cannot get a nation of people across a sea really, really fast. Um, really at any point, but especially not back then, right? You have some options. You get up to the sea, what are you going to do? You're going to go around? That's one option. Um, you could swim um, while you probably run out of energy and your enemy goes around in their chariots, which is what they would have done. Um, or you build boats for months and, uh, and then you start sailing which they didn't have time to do. So they cannot save themselves. They have no option before them, right? And what happens is, I'm going to go ahead and say, more than hard to believe, um, I'm going to say it's, it's just impossible. It's something that does not occur. It defies all reason. It, is, it makes no sense. I'm not going to get up here and tell you, like, no, 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 really? The wind could blow like this. On, you know, if it was just the perfect storm. Um, no, it, these things don't happen. Wind blows, the sea splits down the middle, and they cross on dry land. That little detail there is just ridiculous, right? Dry land? Come on. Like, my yard's still not dry from last week's rain, right? And, and they say they cross on dry land, and the Egyptian enemies pursue them. So now the story gets interesting, right? You're like, oh, no. The chariot people are doing the same thing on dry land. And there's perfect timing, right? The, the, the people of Israel get out and their enemies are in the middle of the sea and the waves crash down upon them. Now, this doesn't happen, but that's what's compelling about it, see? 
Ah, yeah, exactly, Matt. I like that. I like that response. That's what's compelling. Because this doesn't happen. Because this can't happen. Because the only way that this happens is that the one who created it all stepped in and intervened. There's no other chance that this occurs. It's either a totally made-up fable or else God showed up. Those are the two options. And so Moses, the one who God would speak face-to-face with, leads the people in a song, and then the priest's sister, Miriam, picks up a tambourine, and she and all the women of the community start dancing and singing, right? And what do they sing? They sing, we figured it out, we built the boat, we ran faster than the Egyptians. No, they they sang this, sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and rider has been thrown into the sea. And there's more to the song. They sing other things. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. You hear that from Mary's Magnificat? Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness? Because this has never been done, right? Awesome and glorious deeds, doing wonders, You stretched out your hand, and the earth swallowed them up. And then they begin to sing about the people they're going to encounter who will oppose them in the future. And they sing this, terror and dread will fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by who you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, where you have made for your abode the sanctuary, O Lord, where your hands have established, the Lord will reign forever and ever. And of course, they get to their promised land. They find a mountain. On the mountain is a city called Jerusalem, and that is where they lived and where they worshiped, right? And God was faithful to them. But as, as you know, if you read your Bible, it's, it's not a Bible full of faithful people, is it? It's, it's a Bible full of faithful God and really unfaithful people and people who are really, really unsure and are never characterized by their trusting. Because even if, now, now here are the things, you know, I've said this before, you know, why couldn't I have been born around the time when Jesus was here? That would have been really helpful. It feels like there's this little group of people that got to, you know, you know and, you, and you say, if I'd seen somebody who was dead you know, get out of their grave like Lazarus, and I knew Jesus was the one that told him to get out, I'd be fine. My faith concerns, my struggles would be over, right? I'd be good. Well, that didn't happen to the people back then, actually. A lot of those people stopped following Jesus, and it didn't happen here. These people saw this great event, and immediately, as they go before these other nations who they sang were going to stay as still as a stone and let them pass by, What did they do? They thought, no, 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 no. We have to fight them. They sang here, they will be still as a stone while the people that you've purchased have passed them by, but they get close to them. We got to fight them. We got to fight them. We have a really hard time believing this kind of stuff. And interestingly, God gave them consequences to their not trusting. Um, Because here's, here's how it works with God. God knows he's God. He's well aware of that fact. He knows you need God in your life. He knows you need, you need him. And so when you go and run after something else and trust in it, he doesn't let it work for you. 
And that's love, right? I mean, when, when we parent our child and she goes, I would like to steal this from the store, right? And she doesn't normally say that, but say she's thinking it. You know, if she steals it from the store and we're like, oh, whoa, how'd you get a new iPhone? And she's like, I don't know, it just appeared in my hand. You know, we're like, I, you stole it from the store. If we said, well, that's fine, no big deal, we aren't loving her much, right? But if we say to her, ah, <laughs> um, that's not going to work. A, you don't have a plan, so it's literally not going to work, <laughs> you know? And B, you're going to walk back in there and tell them what you did, and it's really not going to work. That's love. We all know that's, as a parent, that's love. Feels crummy for her, right? That's how it is with God. He knows what we really need. He knows what's going to shape us and form us. And, and he's not going to let those other things work. So now God has been their deliverer. He's promised to be also to them a faithful king. And they, and they seek, you know, a king of their own. They, they have a hard time trusting in this idea. So God gives them a king. His name is Saul. And if you read into the history of it, it doesn't go well. It doesn't go well at all. He's arrogant. He's proud. He's like the other kings. He's very impressive. And he's a mess. And what you'd expect would be for God to just hold it over their heads. Remember, he did let them experience that. He let them, he let them walk through it and deal with it. But you'd think he'd hold it over their heads and see, ah, see what fools you are. But instead, he gives them a king who loves him very much. He gives them David. So it, it, this is shocking. You'd think he would just say, see, you dummies. But instead, here you go. I'm going to give you a king to show you a little bit more of my character named David. And that king was appointed by a great man named Samuel, who was a, a prophet of God. And Samuel's mother had dedicated him to the Lord, and her name was Hannah. And she's another singer. Here's another moment of God's incredible grace. We've seen creation. We've seen the Exodus. Now here's King David. And when you read through the Bible, this is a huge moment. And Hannah sings this, my heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord. There is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth for the Lord is a God of knowledge and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken. The feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Shul and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked will be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Again, Miriam here singing about them, about their, you know, look how well we've done. Look, no, she's, she's singing of God and how faithful God is and how powerful God is. And, and 
All these women, Miriam and Hannah, they sang about these powerful nations and kings and mighty men, but all in the light of the strength of the Lord, who is their sovereign, under who they all have to give an account. So these women, all part of one of the smallest nations of somewhat you know, obscure backgrounds compared to anyone else who was alive back then, their words ring far more true than the words uttered by the political leaders or kings of their day because they anchored their songs in the power of God. You'll notice you, you see a lot of songs of King David, but you don't, these, these nations who oppose them, I mean, name them. It's, you could, you could go look it up, but what did their kings say? What was their influence? What was their legacy? It's hard to find. But these humble women's songs have been sung in churches and, and all throughout the world for years and years, for, for all of history. And so Mary, the mother of Jesus, she is familiar with these songs, right? And she anchors her hope in, in the Magnificat, in the strong arm of the Lord. So what is that? Okay, it's an it's a anthropomorphism. There's your word of the day, okay? Anthropomorphism. God described as a person, which God is not, right? God did not flex a giant arm to part the waters at the Red Sea, right? God wasn't up in heaven and he didn't go, ah, right, and the, and the waters parted. He didn't literally pick up Hannah or King David from laying in the dust, right? This is, this is kind of human characteristics layered upon God. So what does it symbolize? It symbolizes God's ability to prevail and conquer and bring justice and to oversee all things to work out the way that they're supposed to in the end. And also to save us. So when do you want a strong arm? When do you want a strong arm? I was trying to think about this, you know. Um, the last time I was at the Grand Canyon, I had one of those moments where I was like, it's really far down there and I'm really close to the edge. And if I were to slip and have one of those movie moments where I grabbed on to one of the rocks and was dangling, which if you know me well, wouldn't last very long, I would want a strong arm right about then, right? And that's what the movies always show, that and just lifts them up, which I've never tried to do that, but I assume it's very difficult. Um, that's when you want a strong arm. Or if you are being crushed by something, and that needs to be removed from off of you. You want a strong arm. Or when you need someone with more power, power than you to stand up and intimidate someone who is intimidating you, right? Like, I don't know. This is just why we have Zach at the church, right? Two strong arms. No, it's uh, just put him at the door if anything goes wrong. That's, that's not true. Zach's a real softy. But, but that's what you want is you want somebody who like, you're like, I feel like I'm in trouble and this person over here changes the dynamic by the strength that they bring into the room. That people know they can do something about this. And, that, and my power is now vested in them, right? That's when you need a strong arm. These women were obscure and they were not positioned for power themselves, but they were looking to the Lord and vesting their power in God and saying, God has the power I do not have. And so they were filled with hope, and they were filled with joy. And that's the theme of our series, is joy. So we often assume our joy comes when we're in control. 
when our circumstances are oriented toward our own happiness, when we are in power, or when we have positioned ourselves to win, right? If I made good financial decisions, once I make those good financial decisions, I think I'll feel joy. Or when I finally get the relationship I'm looking for, then I'll feel the joy that I'm lacking. Or when I finally get my emotional house in order, you know, and I, I find the right like kind of kind of concoction of therapy or whatever I need, then there will be some point where I'll reach a point where I will have joy. And what these scriptures are telling us is that we can have joy without any of that being in order. If we see that the God of the universe, of creation, stands for us, and we can find our hope in him. So these women are teaching us this this profound, amazing thing. And, that's, and that becomes really key to understanding some of the stuff in this scripture, the whole scattering, bringing down. Have you, I mean, do you think about these things the way that I think about them? I, th- I imagine, I mean, and this is probably should be true of a church even like ours, but I, I imagine walking into the nice suburban megachurch and just reading this and just saying, hey, it's biblical literary day. We're gonna take this just straight up God is going to throw down the rich. You know, have you, do you ever imagine what that would be like? And just how awkward it would be? And, and why do we, we struggle with that? We go, well, you know, I, this, this seems a little bit like it's going too far. Because look, we all have our issues and rich people have worked really hard and some of them just inherited it. And proud people probably had damaging relationships at some point, and mighty people have a lot of pressure on them, and kings and authorities have hard jobs. Like, this seems weird. This seems like God not liking some people just based on their status in society. That's how it feels. That's uncomfortable. What, what does this mean then? What, what could it mean? Doesn't God want to love and help everyone? Why would God scatter and bring down anyone? Think back on that Exodus story. Why would God send plagues on a people just because they didn't believe in him and were just trying to run their economic engine? Why would he drown them in the sea for being wrong? Do you ever think about these things when you read the Bible? These are uncomfortable thoughts. God is behind these things. Why would he do that? Right? Let's try this idea on. To rely on the strength of the Lord, you have to cease to rely on your own strength. To rely on the strength of the Lord, you have to cease to rely on your own strength. In Egypt, each plague was an opportunity for the Egyptians to repent. If you think about the amount of plagues, we think of the amount of plagues and we go, That was a lot of judgment. Well, yes, it was. But also, each one is an opportunity. You can say, God, you are strong. You're doing impossible things. We are going to let go of our assertion of control. Each one of those was an opportunity. God was patient. Over and over, he exhibited the strength of his arm and told the powerful Egyptians he was going to deliver his people out of oppression and bring justice. And over and over, you know, Pharaoh hardened his heart. And as you know, in, in politics, this is often how it works, the nation also often follows its leader. 
And so God judges not just Pharaoh, but, but all of them, right? And then again and again, they return to their own self-assertion. So the same, and the same later happens with Israel. We want to make, you know, we want to say uh, Egypt's the bad guys, but then we saw Israel starts to do the same thing. And what does God do? God doesn't just tell them, like I said with my daughter, he doesn't say, sure, you know, trust in your weapons, sure, trust in whatever else. He doesn't let it work for them either. He's consistent. If Israel or Egypt had humbled themselves, they could have experienced the strong arm of the Lord on their behalf. They could have experienced mercy. But God will not give his strength and protection to those who reject his grace, especially when they're harming the humble, the weak, and the poor. He will oppose them. But even then, even if you, find, if you were to find yourself opposed, say, put yourself in the Egyptian's boat. Say you'd been, a, you'd been an Egyptian. Would you have gone along with it? I'm going to say 98% sure you would. Probably, right? It would have been everything you ate and drank. It'd be the whole world you lived in. You probably would have got along with it. Imagine you got cast all the way down and, and all the people who ran your economic engine got away and, and everything had fallen apart. What, what's your situation? Now you're humbled. Now you're in the dust. What does God say about those who are in the dust? He loves to lift them up and save them. This is your moment to receive grace. This is your chance to humble yourself before the strong arm of the Lord. See, when God talks in this oppositional language, if you take it all as just like final judgment, then you know, it seems pretty bleak, but what if, just like all the heroes of the Bible and even some of the foreign kings, you see it as God exhibiting himself for who he is and a chance to be humbled? So, all over the Bible, godly leaders are humbled over and over again. You know, Noah, he does his great, he builds the boat, he leads his whole family through, he does all the righteous things, and then what happens, right? He, he gets to the other side, he gets stone cold drunk and he's an absolute, and it's a shame. You know, it's a shame and a shamble. And God rewards his son who covers over his shame. See, here's a person who's been humbled to the dust and he's given grace. Moses, who leads these people out of Egypt, he reacts in anger. He doesn't trust in the Lord. He isn't even able to enter into the promised land, but he's still upheld in the scriptures as a godly man. What is that about? It's because he's covered by the strength of the Lord. He's given grace. King David, is, who's the great king who, who did some, he, he's a murderer, adulterer, right? And, and God judges him. He loses things. He, he really does have to deal with his sin, but then he still is called the man after God's own heart. The, the pagan kings of the Bible, the biggest one, probably one of the biggest world powers Mentioned in the scriptures is Babylon and King Nebuchadnezzar who, who loses his mind. He gets to the point of, of animal-like behavior and when he turns to God, God restores him. Just because God might turn against you and his strength might be against you does not mean he is not showing you his grace. In fact, it might mean that's exactly what he's inviting you to see. There's a book called The Biblical Illustrator. It has a great quote in it. 
helplessness is the strongest argument to secure divine help. When God shows you that you're helpless, he's showing you where your help comes from. And so often, that takes humbling. And it takes seeing, this is my opportune time. This is God showing that he lifts up the humble. Will you be humbled when God comes after you? Will I be? These great women of God have been singing about it all throughout the scriptures. Mary, Hannah, Miriam, for all of history, listen to them. Declare the greatness of God, not of yourself. Okay, there's this temptation we have, a pendulum swing. I'm going to read these words of Mary again. He's shown strength with his arm. He's scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones. He's exalted those of humble estate. Here, here are what we can do with that. We can say this is, a, this is all spiritual. Um, if you read some of the old commentaries, they'll say this. They'll say, ah, this is about the proud in spirit, right? This is about, this is about those who, who just, it's all, it's all an attitude thing. It doesn't have anything to do with actually being mighty and actually being exalted. It's just if you've exalted yourself in your heart. It's all about the inward life. And then you can look at, at, other, at other arguments that people will say, no, this is, this is actually written to people who are oppressed, who have literally been trampled on. This is hopeful words to them. And the pendulum can swing one side or the other, and, and, and you could kind of pick one or the other, and I think we miss the point when we do that, because it's both. The typical, if you wanted to go right and left, even though I'm not really sure our right and left are currently right and left. I don't even know what's going on anymore sometimes with that. But let's just say your old typical right and left. The right would want to say wealth and might are a sign of morality. You work hard, you make good choices, you're blessed. Um, and it, so stuff like this can't be about material might or material exaltation because material might and material exaltation are signs that you're good and moral, right? So it can't be about that. It's just got to be about things that are within your heart, Okay. And then the left would want to say, no, 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 wealth and might are entirely signs of oppression and unfair advantage. You're, you're rich and mighty off of other people's backs. And you can't reduce this to a spiritual saying or else you lose the bite of how this works out in real life. Um, if it's anything, it has to work out in time and space. You have to really do justice to the poor. You can't just say, ah, in my heart, I am poor. That's not enough. Um, and and Maybe on that side, it would say, don't over-spiritualize this. It lets people off the hook. But the Bible doesn't polarize it. Look, even in this short scripture, the proud are, are, they are proud in the thoughts of their heart, right? That's, that's inward. And then, and that's where they're going to be, they're going to be scattered. They're going to be, the proud are going to be scattered in the thoughts of their heart. But also the mighty are brought down from their thrones. And thrones are outward and physical manifestations of power. The humble will be exalted then and given power. It doesn't break it up into spiritual, physical. It says both. And, now, and then there's confusing things like some may be on a throne because they are the people vested their own strength in them like Saul, like Israel's Saul. So here, Israel, they, they want to put their hope in this man. And they elevate him, you know, really, literally. And, and he looks impressive, but it's, it's an absolute terror. It tears their nation apart, right? And then what does God do? He brings up this, this little King David, this little shepherd boy who is humble and exalts him against all odds and sits him where King Saul was, really, literally, actually. 
right? So his humble spiritual state leads to actual exaltation in life. Now we're tempted to not hold these things in tension, that it is both. We're tempted to over-spiritualize this or under-spiritualize it. We can't over-spiritualize it because like Mary, when she sang this, I mean, she wasn't just having a spiritual conversation. She was looking back on the history of her people, things that really happened. She was reflecting on a baby that was being born in her actual womb who was actually going to live and walk the earth. I mean, she isn't just singing a spiritual idea. She's talking about things that are happening. And you can't take it out of the realm of how it actually came to us. But we can't under-spiritualize it either because she knew that the proud were going to be scattered in the thoughts of their hearts. And, and I wonder, as she watched Jesus, her son, live and walk and how he didn't go around flailing swords and running everybody out of town, if she realized this, this is not one of our earthly ideas. The way this child king is coming is different. He's scattering the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. And the truth is that the two are always one. God's humble path begins in the heart, but it really impacts real events. Um, I'm going to give you just a couple of examples of this. One is more national. Um, So in our history, you could look at something like the civil rights movement. Um, There are a couple of different ways this worked out. There are a lot of different manifestations of the civil rights movement, right? But I'll take just one for a second, and that would be the Black Panthers, where there's an embracing of the open carry of weapons to confront police brutality head-on. If you come into our neighborhood, we're going to fight back. And and the nation, John kind of tipped me off to some of this this week, and I went and studied into it. And sure enough, you know, the, the, the response of the nation was if they pull out their gun, shoot to kill, right? Like it's now it's war. And... There are probably a lot of people who died. But in those moments when they died, when they brought out the weapon to to face down the other weapon, it just felt like just war. And then you look at the peaceful protests of Martin Luther King Jr. that were shaped within Scripture. And those images look like something else. When you see a woman walking peacefully, singing a hymn, and a dog being sicked on her to tear her to shreds, that doesn't look like war. That looks like pure evil. And there's a reason for that. It exposed the heart of the matter, right? This was taking like the humble approach, singing to the Lord and walking peacefully, exposed the evil of the day, more than the weapon. It doesn't make sense in a way. Without without scripture, without these kind of ideals, it doesn't seem like it's going to work. Which one worked? Which one exposed evil for what it was, right? Another example of this is the way it comes home. Think about relationships. Um, The best advice we can give for healthy relationships is serve one another. I mean, when I, when I sit with, if any of you have sat with me for something like marriage counseling or, or if we've talked about a friendship gone awry or something, you're going to hear the same little speech from me. 
And it'll usually be, I'm really trying to learn how to do this. I'm not the expert. But here's the calling, serve one another. Right? And these are spiritually motivated ideals. This is the stuff that comes out of Ephesians 5, and it's patterned on Jesus. So a husband is called, right, to love his wife as Christ loved the church, which means to give his life up. Right? And the woman is called to respect her husband, which is to take the, the role that somebody would, would take toward like a good and loving God, which is where they would say, not to call them God, but to say, I give you the respect you should have. I offer it to you freely. And that pattern has extreme power to change hearts. It has it in marriage. It has it in friendships. And a quick aside, this doesn't mean go get trampled on. It doesn't mean that. Don't ever hear me say that. Don't. I want to clarify this. Because here's how it works within Christianity. When you're given grace by Jesus, and you look at that and you say, ah, this is my chance to get away with more stuff, the Bible has some harsh words for you. Because you've just spurned the cross of Christ and trampled his grace underfoot and, and subjected him to public disgrace. That's what the scriptures say you do when you see grace and say, ah, I can get more of my way. So in a relationship, it's the same. When you give grace and somebody says, ah, now I can take another inch and another mile, you have seen their cold, cold heart exposed. And and that's not okay. And you can leave. Okay? But hear me say this, that if that's not what's happening, if you're being called in to move towards somebody in love, the best tool you have in your tool belt is grace and service. When somebody who is broken, who has, who has issues, like they, they don't know how to respond to you, give them grace and watch the power of God work in their lives. Over and over. I've seen it over and over. I've seen it in my life over and over. See, the spiritual reality doesn't stay internal. It works itself out in real space and time. That's what I'm saying. In the civil rights movement, the spiritual reality didn't just stay internal. It worked itself out in real space and time. It exposed real evil. In relationships, the, the internal spiritual reality doesn't just stay internal. It works itself out into real relationships. He has shown strength with his arm. He scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones. He's exalted those of humble estate. Don't over or under spiritualize this. See the beauty of the tension it creates and walk into all of it. Okay? Our final question How do we receive a, God, a strong God who comes to us in weakness? So, Psalm 118 that we read to open the service, and scriptures like Isaiah 40, Isaiah 51, 52, 53, 59, 63, they all, relate, they all talk about the strong arm of the Lord. But interestingly, in every single one of those situations, the strong of the arm of the Lord is equated with God's coming rescuer, with Jesus himself, okay? When you see in Psalm 118 that it talks about the strong arm of the Lord, and then it says, this is the stone that the builders rejected that's become the cornerstone. We who've read a lot of Bible know that's referring to Jesus. And you can go and hunt that down. And we know that this strong arm of the Lord came to God's people weak as an infant, healing 
putting the ear back on the soldier who was trying to attack him and dying on a cross, right? The strong arm of the Lord came in what appeared to be weakness, but that weakness is what exposes our hearts for what they really are and gives us an opportunity to turn toward God. Mary most likely used the imagery she uses because she knew it predicted her child. She talks in the past tense about what her child was going to do. He has shown the strength with his arm. I think she knew those prophecies about her child. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones. He has exalted those of humble estate. She's speaking of what her son will do as if it's already been done. And that's an incredible thing. That's a combination of humility and absolute certainty and confidence in God. And when we have that kind of confidence in God, we can move forward in humility no matter what situations face us. I think when I see those marchers in the civil rights movement who were able to sing to God and walk no matter what was going to happen to them, I think those people were anchoring confidence in God. When I see people in relationships that are not utterly fulfilling, but they give themselves, even when it's not reciprocated all the time, I see people who've anchored themselves in God and who are drawing their hope from him. Essentially, what I'm saying is we need to have this anchoring in who God is to faithfully live the Christian life. The Christian life is lived by the strength of God's arm, by the strength of Jesus. And this requires a lot of repentance. Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. Now we, we hear that and we go, well, we know Jesus died on a cross. When his disciples heard him say that, they did not know what he was, they didn't, hadn't seen him rise from the dead. All they knew is when you carry a cross, you are humbled to the, to the core. You are taking on shame You're taking on probably a condemnation that you deserve and you're walking through the city where everybody can see you. You don't get to look strong at all, right? Repentance and following after Jesus is embracing our own weakness and trusting only in the powerful way of grace. And because of what we've seen in the life of Jesus, we know that that way of grace leads to future exaltation, just as God has promised, that he raises up the humble, that the fate of Jesus being raised up and vindicated and upheld and set next to God in heavenly places is what stands before his people. And what gets in the way of that is our pride, making ourselves the center of the universe and our desire for our own security, to have power of our own, to be able to say, I feel secure because of everything I've set up for myself. And what Jesus offers is security that's anchored only in him. And that's why we return every week to a table where our king, where the creator God of the universe, is portrayed to us as having come down from his glorious throne, having become flesh and blood, having become, in our estimation, weak, He didn't fight, right? He didn't prove anybody, like people didn't just cower before the strength of his words. He was broken. 
He was cast down for our pride. He was spilled out for the sins of the world. And the life of the Christian is to live as Jesus lived, trusting in the next thing that he's promised. What we learn in the scriptures, we eat this, eat this bread and drink this cup, waiting on a day when we eat it anew with him. When he returns and restores all things. And it doesn't feel possible, does it? That, here's the thing. This is, one, I think, one of the hardest things for us. It feels like that may never happen. It feels like this life is all there is. But we are anchoring in a God that can do the impossible, like the parting of the sea, like coming to earth as a baby, God in the flesh. And that's what's so compelling about it, is the only way this works The only way partaking in a Savior who died on a cross, the only way that works is if that Savior was God. And if we're being invited to anchor our power in the strong arm of the Lord, who came in weakness, but will save us to the uttermost. What we're going to do next is take a time of silence where we just sit before God. There was a lot in there. There's a lot for me in there. This is a big thing to consider. As you approach this table, I mean, that, that is what you're approaching. This, the claim that Mary had was that her son was the Lord and that he had come to really undo all the plans of the world's rulers and to offer a way of peace that can only come by a cross. And to come up here and eat this bread and drink this cup is to affirm that is my hope. I'm anchoring myself only in God's strong arm, even though he's portrayed it to us and he's begun that work on a cross. Just sit before God with that for a couple minutes. I think think about every seven days, the way that God has designed the rhythm of Christian worship is that we run out of gas on believing that and we need to come back to him and say, help my unbelief. So that's what this next two minutes are for. And then after that, we'll take the Lord's Supper together. I'll come up here and serve as Mike begins to lead us in worship. And then we'll sing, and I hope that these songs can come from your heart and be a celebration of what God has done and who he is. And then after that, because this table is really a table that brings us together, that's why we eat and we stay together and we minister to one another. So I'll pray and leave two minutes of silence for you. Father in heaven, your ways are not our ways. Your thoughts are not our thoughts. All throughout the scriptures, we see you bringing about your power and your victory in ways that we would never dream up or imagine. They seem counterintuitive. They're definitely not our ideas. The kingdoms of the world have raged on and on. They've fought with one another. They've sought power. In our relationships, we've done the same. We cannot get over our addiction to ourselves. But God, you have shown yourself powerful over and over through what we perceive as weakness. What you've shown us is that grace is what can change the very soul of the darkest heart. You've shown us that grace is what our hearts long for. 
You've shown us this because you're bringing us back to you. I pray that our hearts would see it and that we would receive you again. Guide us now as we come before you in prayer.